Hello, Swords and Stereo listeners. This is Matt. I was just going to let y'all know that this episode you're about to listen to was recorded almost two years ago. So if something seems out of place, or if the quality doesn't seem what you've been expecting lately, uh, that's the issue. Uh, This is when we weren't for sure if we wanted to do a podcast or not, and we were just playing around with it. Uh, But we liked... uh, we like this episode, so we decided to go ahead and release it. I hope you enjoy it. Bold City Longsword presents Swords in Stereo. Swords and Stereo podcast. I am here with Kevin Alford. Kevin, introduce yourself. Thanks for having me, Matt. Uh, it's good to be here. My, my name is Kevin Alford. I have about 20 years or so in traditional martial arts, specifically Chinese martial arts. I am the owner and head instructor at Kung Fu and Sanda Academy. We teach Chinese Kung Fu. It's a Southern Shaolin style called Five Ancestor Fist. It's a kind of a close quarter combat art similar to what I would probably say maybe Wing Chun is probably the best representative I could I could relate it to. Focuses on joint locks, throws, close distance fighting. It does have some traditional Chinese weapons, spear, broadsword, daggers, things like that. And Sanda is a sport combat art. It is similar to American kickboxing, uh, somewhat similar to Muay Thai kickboxing, minus the elbows. You won't see a lot of elbows in Sanda. Boxing techniques are legal. Kicking techniques are legal. And throws, takedowns. Basically, any takedown that doesn't end up with somebody landing on their head, like a Undertaker tombstone or something, <laughs> is legal. Yeah, like so. <laughs> no compression injuries on the spine or anything like that. So, like a double leg takedown's fine, but you can't slam them. You can't pick them up and then reverse them and invert them as right. you slam. Okay. Yeah, no, no DDTs uh, and no joint locks in Sanda. Uh, unlike it's uh, MMA, you know, yeah. arm bars and submissions and things like that, rolling and no joint locks. Uh, Sanda is more about longevity, I think, in that regard, which is a benefit of it because I don't have to worry about getting my arm broken every time I go and compete. But it is full contact. I'm pretty closely related to Muay Thai if I had to give an analogy that most people will know. And I believe Sanda is particularly popular in the States, very popular overseas, in the Middle East as well. Yeah, so. Um... A little background on us. We uh, we share our HEMA space with Kevin. I had never heard of Sanda until I met Kevin. And then after I met Kevin, anytime there's a UFC in uh, the Eastern Europe or Russia, all those people list Sanda as one of their credentials. Yeah. Uh, so it must, it's very popular over there. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a devastating art. Personally, I was watching videos. You know, I trained a little bit of boxing, a little bit of uh, different styles of Kung Fu, light contact, continuous sparring, things like that at tournaments. A little bit of Muay Thai basics in my best friend's garage, you know, but never anything on any kind of official level. 
when I found a Sandus school, you know, that was a nice surprise. I had a Kung Fu teacher and I was learning five ancestor fists from him, which is that Shaolin style that I teach now. And they also offered a Sanda or Sancho class. You know, the terms are interchangeable. And I showed him a video one time and I said, that's what I want to be able to do. Because I already kind of knew basics of punching and kicking. I had a little raw potential, but it was nothing spectacular. It was just, I could punch, I could kick, I could block a shot or two every once in a while. <laughs> yeah. I was really good at taking shots. <laughs> uh, and then I saw, I stumbled across some Sanda videos and I had heard a little bit about it and I'd seen some professional fighters do it. Uh, Kung Lee is a big Sanda. He's got a background in Sanda. I think he was 18 an hour or something. Don't quote me for Google that. Before I... Yeah, so uh, for people out there are unsure what to picture in their head for Five Inch Sister Fist, then you must tell me that it's very similar to what the Fire Nation does on Avatar The Last Airbender. Yeah. yeah, it's firebending, basically. Awesome. Yeah, yeah we, we uh, our HEMA club calls y'all fire, the Fire Nation hooligans behind y'all's back. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> um, yeah. So there's a, so there's weapon styles with your Kung Fu school. Right, correct. Um, what weapons do uh, you traditionally train? There's kind of a broad spectrum in Five Ancestor Fist. We do the traditional Chinese weapons, which you're going to see, you know, broadsword, spear, staffs, sticks, wooden staffs and sticks, of course, like Kali or Screaming Sticks. There's a couple little less popular ones that you'll see in movies and things, which I personally love, which is the Guandao. It's about a six foot pole with a huge, almost scimitar style blade on the end, almost mm -hmm. like a pirate sword, if you can envision that. Really heavy weapon. I don't think it's super practical. I think it's kind of the thing of legends. <laughs> yeah. It's more, almost more of a crowd control device yeah. than a one on one. Right. You know, big weapons like that, you, you could probably testify that you have to be incredibly skilled because if you put your weapon out on the end and you're swinging at somebody and they're far away and you're doing a big slashing attack, hard to get that weapon back into your hands to actually defend if they come in on you. So, uh, double daggers as well. Believe it or not, kind of crazy. In our traditional lineage, the Five Ancestor Fist, the school in Malaysia, which is where our lineage comes from, they have a chopstick for them. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so if you're ever at dinner and you get a, an assassination chip tapped on you, and the hawkers just grab your chopsticks and stab it into their eye. Mm -hmm. In the traditional martial arts community, as far as weapons go, is there a sparring culture? Everyone's going to have a different answer from you. I can only give you my perspectives, and my perspective is a harsh one, and I would say no. I've been around for a little bit. I have about 20 years' experience in and out of martial arts, different styles, mainly Chinese martial arts. I've done two styles of Kung Fu. I've done Taekwondo. I've done. Uh, I've participated in a little bit of boxing, some kickboxing as well. Been to several schools. Been to Krabbenzgaw School. Never seen... One time, not once, people doing legitimate weapon sparring. Not one time in about 20 years of traditional martial arts. So in my limited perspective, if you take it for what it is, I would say no. Which is a shame because I think that kind of falls in line with today's, with, with the way today's traditional martial arts are trained in a lot of schools, you know, formwork, maybe some drilling, not a whole lot of sparring with, with the hand-to-hand -hand stuff, you know, like point sparring or continuous sparring or full contact kickboxing, things like that. I haven't seen a lot of weapon play. We do weapon, we, sorry, we do weapon forms and we've, 
done them in my, my old schools when I wasn't teaching. I learned weapon forms, of course, you know, broadsword, spear, double daggers, and all that. Even when I did toilet foot back when I was 18, we did two-person forms. So we would do one person with a spear, one person with a broadsword, or we called it a dao. And, you know, it was a choreographed, choreographed fight, basically. No weapon sparring now. I've talked to some martial artists from traditional backgrounds that say they weapon spar. And I, and I don't mean to be harsh, and I'm not trying to be come down on anybody. But what I've seen you guys do in HEMA is really the truest form of weapon sparring that I've ever seen. Really, the uh, outside of maybe, and I don't have a ton of um, knowledge about Kendo, but they do. It's an art, to my understanding, based on weapon fighting. Or it seems to be predominantly that's what they do from an outsider's perspective with a limited knowledge of it. You know, just observe observations. Yeah, there's a kindle school here in Jacksonville, and I've been meaning to go over and just introduce myself and talk to them, but their classes are at the exact same time our classes are, so I'd literally have to take a day off of the HEMA club to go see them. Right. But, um, but your students won't love you for that. No, no. Where's Matt today? I ditched y'all to go <laughs> to kindle class. So when you guys see a Facebook post, I'm feeling sick, can't make it no, in today. You know you. where he is. We should we should just go, all go over there. Yeah. The field trip. Yeah. So uh, I attended Long Point South in Orlando uh, the two years they did it down there, and they were part of the International Martial Arts Festival at the ESPN Center at Disney, and they had a lot of kids, teens. Uh, it was mostly teenagers mm-hmm. doing form work with their weapons and it seemed like they were getting like they were being judged off of their enthusiasm and their acrobatic skill and i mean all the hema but i'm my eyes are rolling back into my head as he describes this go ahead yeah well because so uh they had the hema people go last because um uh, the reason i heard was that they had sponsors sponsors had their logos on the map and they were scared we would mess their logos up, so they had us go last. So the HEMA crowd had to sit through all these form displays. It was a mixed reaction from us. I heard outright laughter at points, and I think I think some of the parents were upset with us. Might have been. What they were doing was amazing. I'm not gonna. Yeah. Lie. It was it was Olympic level. It, I felt like they were freestyle breakdancing and doing Olympic mat flips and stuff too as far as the martial this is this is what i'm going to use to protect myself in the situation i i didn't see much of that yeah well and i I don't mean to be i don't know i don't want to put somebody's performances down i just come from a purist standpoint you know so just an opinion take it for what it is Uh, i like combat and i want to know what i'm teaching my students or what i've learned or what someone's telling me to go do in the in the ring is going to work, you know. And I've done forms most of my life, actually. Well, you know, most of my martial my martial journey, I've done forms. And they have a lot of value, but there's also a lot of limitations. And I've noticed a lot of schools will focus very heavily on forms. And like you're saying, like the acrobatics and stuff. Man, I wish I could do it. Yeah, you definitely. I mean. It's- I feel like it's a way they they backdoor trick the kids into getting in shape. It's not even it's not even so much that this is this is going to help you fight. Right. This is going to help you stay in shape to fight longer. Right. Yeah. I mean, and I do weapon forms myself, and I and I and I teach them. But 
think, but I want what I teach to be practical and effective and, and Kung Fu, especially. Now, you guys were at the, the ESPN. That was a, an international, was a Chinese martial arts. And yeah, they had a little bit of everything there. It was yeah. mixed. Okay. Uh, I can speak for Chinese martial arts. It's very, very flowery and flowy, and there's spins and there's jumps and there's acrobatics. There's purposes for all that. And and as a as a teacher, I understand why I'm doing that and why I'm teaching that. As a student, I didn't always get it. You know, I thought that when I do this jump up into the air with my weapon and I spin it above my head and I land in this nice, cool looking crouching stance with you know where I'm waist high and I got this weapon, this nice cool pose. I thought that was combat. It's not. It's, you know, those those moves have principles and application and it teaches your body to move a certain way it's creating muscle memory it's teaching your body to move martially which is you know important it's kind of what i equate it to is go hitting a punching bag for a boxer they don't do forms right i mean the boxers are generally incredibly they're very proficient at what they're they're giving if you go watch a, a boxing match it's going to be practical application practical use stuff they go hit punching bags they're just doing a repetition of movements on a bag. Yeah. You know, forms are a repetition of movements in the air. So I don't mean to come down on them because they do have a no, lot I don't, of value. I, they I really don't think train your body. We're coming down on forms. It, I think I think it's just the elevation of forms, of people putting forms on a pedestal. So Meyer has devices in his book. It's usually uh, four to five strikes in a certain order to teach you body mechanics and how to react to certain situations. Yeah. So if you, if you, if you, Go through these forms enough when you find yourself in that situation later in a sparring situation, you naturally want to do the next movement in that in that device. And I train at Tim Planet and we do jujitsu there and they um all their warm-ups are flow drills. And it's literally it's it's basically a form. You're doing ten, you know, uh seven to ten moves in a row with your partner semi-compliant right so you they're, they're resisting just enough your training properly and and you'll find that later that you'll you'll end in a spot and not necessarily the beginning of the of the flow drill of the warm-up they call them you'll find your spot that's in the middle of one of those but you'll know the next correct move and you'll be able to do it with very little thought process yeah. and that, i think that's what forms and traditional arts are doing too yeah i think so and it depends on your your teacher, their training methodology, your the gym you go to. What do, what type of gym are they? Are they a, a theory school or are they a practicality school? Uh, I've been to a couple of them, and, and not jujitsu, uh, traditional martial arts. I've been to a couple of kung fu schools where we had a very very heavy reliance on form training. It was almost all we did, and then on occasion we would do some two person drills. Um, I think there needs to be balance in all things, especially, you know, coming from a traditional martial arts perspective, we are all about balance and fluidity and becoming what you need to be. I believe you have to substitute training methods occasionally. A little reliance on form work here, a little reliance on bag work here, some pad work here, some two-person drills, some sparring, of course. One of my questions, though, on that note is, what do you do as a businessman when you're having somebody come in that wants to do a hobby, a combat sport, right? I would call him a combat sport. That's not for everybody. Getting no. smashed in the face. So 
and my lead into this is I think forms have value in that regard. It gives them those people that, that don't want to get punched in the face. I'm kind of a weirdo, maybe a little crazy. <laughs> I like it when I get punched in the face. It makes me feel alive. It makes me feel like they love me in reality. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it, but it's not for everybody. Yeah, you know? some people enjoy the challenge, uh, overcoming an obstacle. Yeah, and then some people are there for a learning experience mm-hmm. and uh, as a hobby because they're interested in either either the time period or something hemo adjacent. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, last season of Game Game of Thrones is about to start up, and I know we're gonna have and we're gonna have a couple new members just randomly show up at the club because someone's gonna type in sword fighting Jacksonville in the search engine and we're going to be what pops up. Um, And yeah, so I think, I think you can divide that up. You can, you can kind of after one class, see what people need, want, what, what they want. And then you can, you know, do your best to give it to them. Uh, Normally if I, if I have people who want to go a little harder, I'll have them gear up and pair together. And they'll be doing the exact same thing the rest of the class is doing. They'll just be doing it with a little more veracity. Yeah. Um, I like that. And, you know, it's good. You're meeting the needs. And that's what, you know, people go to a certain school because they have, they have a need that they need filled. They're not getting it, so they're going to go. And once you can recognize that, so that you're a good, good trainer, a good coach, you can recognize what their need is and attempt to fill it. Yeah. I think, uh, and then a lot of people, they'll, their needs will change. Um, when I started HEMA, it was a hobby, and then I wanted I, it morphed into I wanted to do tournaments, and now it's more morphed back into a more of a hobby again. But like it's a serious hobby. It's I want to do it to train. I want to do it to be healthy. It's not so much a I need to go prove myself to anybody anymore. So even even those people who like doing forms maybe later change they'll they'll see those guys over there going hard and be like, well, maybe I'll give that a try. And then maybe they won't, don't like it when they do and they'll come back. You know, you just have to give them, give them options. So, so let me ask you a question on that note. When you guys go to a tournament, how many different modes of competition are there? Are there? Cause when I go to Chinese martial arts tournament or open, there's generally forms. There's generally, sorry, let me phrase that. There's generally hand forms. There's generally weapon forms. There's some light sparring. Some of them also have a full contact event as well, like a kickboxing or a sandoff. There's reaction skills, which is competition with, say, Wing Chun Chi Sao, if you are familiar with that, where the people lock hands. You see it a lot in Ip Man movies with them practicing. Mm -hmm. Or there's a push hands division, which is almost akin to sensitivity training and wrestling it's about using the other person's momentum it's there's no striking involved it's almost like you're wrestling but you're there's certain rules and limits so you have to stand in one place you put your hands on each other you find a contact point you try to throw them off balance essentially without striking them or without shooting in on them and taking doing their takedown with window movement so there's multiple avenues of competition that don't require somebody to get in and get humbled <laughs> yeah what do you guys have if you go to a tournament well, I haven't. I know the largest tournament in the U.S. is Long Point. I, ha- I haven't attended, and I think they do things different. Our group, our main two tournaments are studying steel and surfo, mm-hmm. and we just started attending Winter Ring. Um, there's usually a longsword open that's full contact, and then 
a lot of tournaments will have some form of cutting with used tatami, like like the traditional Asian martial arts. And that's about it. There might be full contact with a different weapon, and there might be wrestling. It just depends yeah. on where you're at. Yeah. One thing I've never seen in my traditional martial arts training, like I said, I've never seen actual legitimate weapons sparring, and I've never seen cutting. I've never been involved in Japanese martial arts, so I've probably missed out on that because I know some of those do or rely heavily on that type of training. Traditional Chinese martial arts, never once seen it, never once even heard about it. I have heard some guys say, yeah, we do some weapon sparring here and there. When I see weapon sparring, I see you guys gearing up. I see you using synthetic swords. It's hard to do weapon sparring without padding, in, in my opinion, you know, without yeah. a lot of protection. And the people that I've seen do weapon sparring, you can watch the videos online. You know, it's they're not, they're not wearing any gear, I think, as a peer. Just again, my interpretation. Interpretation and opinion of things. You need to really be pressure testing stuff to know that it's going to be effective. If there's no pressure testing, there's no gear. How can you really know? And in a traditional, again, I take it back to the traditional martial arts. I don't see people going that route ever, which is a shame because that's what that was originally intended for. You know, they use those weapons in war. Unfortunately, I never see it. I wish there were more schools around that could do weapon sparring. Yeah, well, that's why I wanted to ask you about it because. Um... I was on Purple Heart Armory the other day, and they sell synthetic versions of Eastern weapons on there. And I was like, "Oh, there must be, there must be schools that gear up in the same protection for or protective gear that we gear up in for HEMA, but use these Asian weapons." And then you're like, "Nah, that's not real. <laughs> or <laughs> it's not real in Florida anyway." <laughs> well, again, you know, this is my limited perspective. I haven't seen it. You know, the best resource we have is the internet. So if you go online, you can probably find some things. Uh, I've been watching YouTube videos and things like that, trying to find legit weapon sparring in the Eastern community and in Chinese martial arts community. There's a lot of people experimenting, which I like. I like that people are taking their skill and saying, you know what, there's none of this. Let's try it. And they, they find out what works and they find out what doesn't work and they get some scars and they get some bruises. And, you know, they're trying to use protection and things like that. But that, I like that, you know, people getting out there and, and stretching their art and stretching their interpretation of the art. I just have never seen any firsthand, not one time, which is sad because I've been in martial arts for 20 years. So again, my perspective, but 20 years of doing something and you've never seen something. Well, so um, like I said before, we share a space and you actually reached out to us. So how did you hear about HEMA? Well, actually a student told me about you guys and, he asked me one day, he goes, hey, do you mind if I do HEMA on the side? I said, first of all, what the hell is that? <laughs> Second of all, let me Google it. <laughs> and I Googled it. The reason he asked is because in traditional martial arts, we very, we really value, you know, honor, integrity, and respect, humility. And there's this kind of little bit of a fallacy that you shouldn't train other arts. I don't believe that. Uh, but he was asking for permission. Of course, I said, yeah, go for it. That looks awesome. Probably stretch your skill set a lot. Uh, once I Googled you guys and found out what HEMA actually is, I said, oh, wow, they do legitimate weapon sparring. Um, so once I, I Googled you, you know, hit you guys up, found your Facebook page. I go, oh, there's one in Jacksonville. That's, I'm in Jacksonville. Stars are aligning. 
<laughs> so went out and tried a class. I loved it instantly. And I think what I liked about it is going in there, having no experience doing what you're doing, but having my background, most of it, not all of it, translated. You know, when I do my weapons form, I do broadsword form, Chinese style. Um, most of the footwork translated. Most of the slashes, the cuts, translated. Uh, our broadsword is a tiny bit different than, say, your messer. The handle is generally shorter, still a one-handed cutting weapon. The shape is the same, depending on where you look. Little differences, some of your messers I've seen are, are straight, with no curve in the blade, some have curves. So. Most of it, I would say, translates, in my opinion. And I could kind of keep up. I could learn a couple things. It was different putting a two-handed weapon in my hand, like the longsword. That, for me, was a big learning curve, because I don't have any two-handed weapons that I hold like that. We have spear, which would be a two-handed weapon, but you hold it you know, different use. Mm -hmm. Broadsword translated pretty well to, to Messer, though. I loved it instantly. I go, man, this is... Everything that I've been learning kind of translates. I can kind of keep up. This is good. A safe way to actually practice with weapons instead of putting on, you know, foam helmets that we use at martial art tournaments where we do some sparring. You know, it's not going to protect you if somebody stabs you with a foam stick in the yeah. eye, you know. So it was it was a nice eye-opening experience for me. You've been training Messer with us for over a year now. How has that experience been for you? Enlightening. Yeah. Uh, I've had a great time training Messer. Learned a lot. A lot of the use is similar, like I said earlier. Some things are new to me. Even some of the takedowns off Messer are the same for us. You know, we do a wrap around, you block a number one strike, you come in, you can grab the wrist or something like that, try and wrap it with your arm, and maybe set up a hip toss. I mean, we all have the same body, so we all are going to move universally. There's only so many ways the body can bend. I've enjoyed the journey. I would like to do get a turn under my belt so I can figure out where I'm really at, get some feedback from, you know, reality, reality calls. One of the things I've noticed that was hard for me is some of the basic, what you guys would call parries when I'm wearing gauntlets and stuff. It's hard for me to move. That's not something I'm used to, you know, doing form work because we never need to wear gear. So it takes away a lot of the intricate, techniques for me because i'm not experienced enough to actually apply them when i got this clunky glove on and i'm trying to spin my wrist around i think it's a lot of people and there's a lot of factors that come into that it seems like in hema every six months a new glove comes out and yeah and they're the, the the advancement is minimal but it is advancing even with the long sword where you have two hands on the weapon, it's still it's hard to manipulate it the way you can do with no gloves on at all. The takedowns, uh, Danny's class, she's she's following the book the way the book's written, and the book assumes you know a certain amount of knowledge already. He wrote it for people who were already practicing, which I I thought was good for you that you had been training with the Chinese broadsword for so long. You might you might have like a head start. Or you're starting on the level that the book intended people to start at? That's funny you say that. We teach weapons at an advanced level. So technically, I have a late start. Because <laughs> if I was at your school, I would have been there 20 years before I put my hands on a weapon. You guys start with weapons day one, you know. But you go to sorry, you go to traditional martial arts school. And it's like, well, you know, you get your black belt. You can start learning bladed weapons. And it's just a different methodology. We believe you got to learn to. 
walk and then punch and then kick and then maybe put a weapon in your hand once you're proficient with that. I loved you guys are like, day one, here's your sword. I'm like, oh, you mean I get to play with the sword already? I had to wait three years to learn a Chinese guandao. My teacher used to torment me. He'd go over there and hold it while I was doing my exercises or something because he knew I wanted to learn that weapon. So I love that you guys jump right in. Well, I think traditionally in the in the time period that you learned a certain amount of wrestling first. Wrestling, from what I read, wrestling is like their baseball back then. You know, mm-hmm. people got together and wrestled starting at a very young, early age. So by the time you were preteen, teenager, and you start your official training, you could probably out wrestle any normal person walking around right now. I I like to apply my wrestling as much as I can in Messer, but I think I rely too heavily on it because I'm more comfortable with that than I am actually with hitting somebody with a sword. Again, you know, I come from a foreign background where I've never weapon sparred until until Hema, you know. And we did drills back, you know, I've done drills with my teacher where we play with weapons, but we were never hitting each other. We were never pressure testing anything. We were trying to learn some disarms and joint locks and things like that. Jumping into Messer, I'm like, I can stand out here and get whacked by their sword and try and keep up, you know, or I could run in and grab them and try and throw on them, which I enjoy. I think I'm a little, I think I rely a little too much on it personally, but I'm a physical guy. I like to spar. I come from a full contact background. So if I take a shot, you know, going in, okay, well, let's, let's try and do that one more time without taking the abuse this time. I like to get in there and get dirty. Well, so the Messer book is very takedown heavy, but you have to be careful over, you know, training that or, or, you definitely want to train it, but you don't want that to be the core because you might show up at a tournament and they'll be like, oh, we're on a basketball floor, no takedowns. Yeah. So you're like, oh. That man. would cripple me, you know, as yeah. a competitor. I'd be like, well, I better get real good real fast. Yeah, half the, half your training <laughs> it, you know, is now useless. Yeah. Some people, some tournaments will let you threat the takedown so you can get your opponent off balance and then you kind of just freeze there and Set hope they call it. Then, yeah. yeah, sure. At your school, earlier you talked about your student asking permission training up to cross train basically is that your attitude to say yeah that's cool you think that's a that's a modern thing is that you think that like the ufc and the whole yeah you should probably learn a little bit of everything has affected the traditional martial arts like uh, if it was the 60s or 70s with all the world war ii vets and korean vets over here starting up their school you think they would be like yeah go Go train some of this over there and some of this over here. Bring it back to me. No, I don't think that's how it would fly back then. I think it is more modern thought process. A little backstory on, you know, the traditional martial arts that I come from. Now, again, they're not all going to be the same, but cross-training isn't really seen as something you should do. It's more modern today, but back in the day, you got a teacher. You stuck with that teacher. He passed down the art to you. You passed down the art to your students. They passed it down to their students. There wasn't a lot of changing the art. It's kind of looked on and looked at in a negative light or frowned upon, actually, to to change the art. You know, I've been in schools that were attached to lineages that go back to a thousand years or whatever, whatever number you want there. And they say, this is how that was done then. This is how it should be done now. We do these forms this way. We do these techniques this way. And that's great to an extent. I don't have a traditionalist view to it anymore. A couple of my problems with that is the knowledge gets lost, for one. You're teaching me a form that was done a certain way. 
500 years ago, it's like the telephone game, right? You tell somebody something, and they tell somebody, and they tell somebody, and at the end of you know at the end of the journey, you have a product that was maybe has some similarities to how it was originally taught. So a lot of the knowledge I think gets lost with that mentality of do it this way. There's also no involvement with that mentality, and it's it's really funny. One of the arts that studied five ancestor fist is a combination of five arts. But in today's traditional standing, and I've noticed this in the Chinese martial art community, that it shouldn't be changed, right? It shouldn't be added to. But our whole art, the Kung Fu style I teach, was a combination of a couple guys getting together and go, well, let's add this, let's add this, let's add this, and let's put it all together. And now we got new art. So, But if you talk to teachers there, you'll see a lot of, I think you should master our art before you go try and master another art. Because... You don't want to be a jack of all trades and a master of none. You want to be really good at a couple things that our art teaches you. And, you know, there, there's some politics involved and they want to keep students and they have the businessman approach as well. And they kind of, I've noticed there's kind of a lot of playing to the fact that, well, it's a lineage and we need to honor it this way because my teacher taught it to me this way. Blah, 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 blah. I'm not, I'm just not a huge fan of that. I think that limits growth. I think people should cross train. When my student asked me if he could train in HEMA, I was like, yeah. Oh, wait, go do it. <laughs> go get that knowledge. And I do know some traditional martial artists that, that see that light too. I also think combat evolves. So if you're not training multiple styles or you don't have a style that has a lot of variety, maybe I should say that you don't have to go chain multiple styles, but you need to have a complete art, I think. And a little side, I mean, before I get myself sidetracked, Sanda is not all inclusive to combat. You know, it's punching, kicking, and throws. There's no groundwork in Santa. MMA is not all-inclusive to combat, in my opinion. It's pretty close, but there's no weapons. There's no knives. There's no gun disarms. I mean, it's just fighting for sport. Santa's just fighting for sport. So I like a combination of those, those things. Now, would I go try a gun disarm on somebody if they pull a gun on me? No. Give them my wallet. Hope they leave. <laughs> but I like having that knowledge, and I like training those things, because it's fun and exciting that does have a place in martial arts. So I believe you should cross train, but I don't believe you should spread yourself so thin that you're not really getting good at any one thing. I like people to go do multiple styles. I'm a more rounded fighter. Like I was saying, combat evolves. If it didn't, we would still be, you know, sword fighting for war, but no, we're blowing each other up with planes and tanks and bombs. Hand to hand combat evolves. You know, if you look at old pictures of the Pugilists, they got their hands up, they got one out in front. They got one out like a foot from their chest and they got another one right by their chin. You know, the old Irish Notre mm -hmm. Dame guy, right? I mean, combat evolves. It is what it is. So I think to be a combatant, you need to evolve with time. It's a delicate balance when you run a business because you want your students to be effective. You want to be effective yourself. But you don't want to say, well, go try every style and then your student leaves yeah. you. <laughs> so there needs to be some balance. I want to meet my students' needs. Like you were talking earlier. If somebody comes in, you meet their needs. Because eventually, if you don't meet their needs, you're going to leave anyway. So. If I'm not meeting your need, I'm just going to try and take the humble route as much as I can and say, hey, well, yeah, go do, go do Hema. That sounds like it would really benefit your skill set a little bit. I think you would enjoy it. This particular student, he was all, all up into that. I said, yeah, it's all you, man. Go, go get it. And he still, and he continued to train with me as well. You know, you know, teenager, he had a lot on his plate. Yeah. Your current school now, you're not affiliated with a certain lineage? No, we're not attached to a lineage. Uh, I've been in schools that were attached to lineages before. I took a uh, toilet foot come through when I was younger, 18, and they were attached to a lineage. And 
San Francisco, where their grandmaster was, which is attached to his all the same lineage, but his his teacher overseas, so been attached to his lineage in Malaysia. I don't personally love the aspect of being controlled as a teacher because when you're attached to a lineage, you can't do certain things, and it's unfortunate. But if I'm teaching, let's just use five ancestors as an example because that's currently what I'm teaching. Well, that means I can't teach Wing Chun principles that I think are effective in my five ancestors class. Or I can't teach, oh, you know, look what my boxing coach showed me. I can't teach that in my five ancestors class. Now, in my Sandoc class, I could do that. But I think that severely limits, you know, because you're taking pride in something which is great. and You're trying to honor the lineage as it was taught. But there's no complete art, in my opinion. I think that mixed art, mixed martial arts is a great approach because you're getting most of what you need to cover for combat, the hand-to-hand -hand side anyways. You're, you're grappling, you're throwing, you're punching, and you're kicking. Gosh, that's most of the fighting, you know. Now, you throw weapons in there and things like that, or multiple opponents. Well, okay, but, you know, we're talking sport. You know, that's a pretty inclusive combat style. It's damn near as good as it's going to get, you know, without killing each other <laughs> yeah. or putting weapons in our hands. Uh, but to back up to what you were saying, being attached to a lineage, like I said, you can't do certain things that might benefit your students. You are required to honor certain oaths and obligations. And I don't think that that's always a bad thing, but it could be manipulated. I've seen things in the past that I didn't like because it kind of becomes a hierarchy of control and not about here's the product I have. I want to give it to people, hobbyists, martial artists. I want people to be able to self-defend, but there becomes a lot of, you know, people get their hands on it and it could get corrupted a little bit if, if you're not careful, if you're not trying to be aware of it. And Again, in traditional martial arts, we're really big on, you know, honor, respect, humility, honor your teacher, things like that. So there's got to be a fine line of almost like a trust, but verify, you know, teacher tells you to do something, you do it. <laughs> you don't say, nah, man, I'm going to, I'm going to go over here and do this. No, you just do what your teacher tells you. And there's a lot of validity to that, in my opinion. But, you know, there's always a but. You have to be careful because some people are doing it for money. You know, some people want that control and they used lineage as, as a way to, solidify their control over a product which i don't think is i don't think that's a particularly awesome way to go about doing business yeah i've, I've read a couple of books about running a martial arts school i listened to a couple of podcasts about it and the topic of cult of personality keeps coming up where I, I guess it's a good business model to just base your school around one person because then there's a hierarchy and decisions can easily be made. You, there, you don't have to like put it out there and see what happens. Just like, no, you ask him, he says what happens. That's the end of it. You can start moving forward. So there's a, it makes things easier, but that can easily turn into like a weird dictatorship. I think yeah. there's been a couple of uh, examples of that in HEMA before I joined HEMA. And uh, I haven't met any of these people, but I've, I've heard the stories. Um, yeah, and I've had a couple of run-ins. I'm trying to be vague so I don't you know, name drop anybody or disrespect anybody. But yeah, I've, I've, I've had some run-ins like that too, where it becomes a, almost like a corrupt hierarchy. And it's not out for the good of the students, you know, or the, or the instructors trying to sell a product or, you know, promote art or keep the, the history of it alive and promote tournaments and stuff like that. So it can get dicey. So with, with you starting a school with no lineage, how did you come up with your curriculum? Because HEMA, there's not someone I can be, go out and just, hey, this is, I need, I need to run 
you know, 20 classes. Well, there kind of is, but we'll, I'll get to that in a minute. So, like, do y'all train from a, a source book, what we call a fetch book? Is there Chinese manuscripts from 300 years ago that you can go look up and see what they said? There may be. I don't have any of them. I do go out of a couple books for some of my, my material. I'll look at a book that is based on Zhuai Jiao, which is tri- Chinese wrestling. It's kind of similar to your guys' ring. I'll grab some techniques out of that. Most of my knowledge comes from the forms I've learned in the past, you know, and I've done those forms so many times, it's hard to get those moves. So, in particular, the current system that I teach, you know, I said, like I said, I've been involved in a couple lineages. Um, the current one I teach, I've learned all that through forms. My teacher had a combat background, so he kind of made it his own. And he said, you know, when this, when we do this application, it's this technique, as opposed to maybe one of his counterparts saying, this technique, you know, this particular technique means this. So, kind of ties in to what I was saying earlier about things get lost in translation. You know, he comes from a different background, so he had a different interpretation of it. All of the techniques I teach are based on five ancestor fifths computer, Shaolin techniques. Now, when I create a form, I could do whatever form I want. I could put it in any order. Let's, I'll, I'll speak Hema for a second. I can say, okay, take your broadsword and do a number one, a number two, a number three, back to a two, three, Back to a five six, you know, step off, take an angle, half step back, what you call advancing or retreating step. I, I believe, you know, and and I could make a form and say it's whatever I want because I'm still using the five ancestor fist techniques in that, and I just and I just make the form a certain way and say this is what you guys are going to do. Now, if I'm attached to a lineage and I'm doing a form, that form is going to be the same form that they do in the Taiwan school. In the same form that they do in the Okinawan school, and the same form that the sister school over in India is doing. You know, those forms are going to be the exact same. But we're all doing the same techniques, just different orders. So I'm teaching a Shaolin style Kung Fu in the spirit of five ancestor fists. That's funny because uh, Meyer, Meyer has multiple devices in his book, and he kind of explains to you how he made those devices. He, you know, you should order. You should let strikes fail, and sometimes in the book he'll he'll just give you the first two strikes, and then he'll he'll be like, you know what to do. <laughs> if you've made it to this part of the book, you know what to do. Just do that, mm-hmm. uh, which I always, I always find hilarious because he's like the lessons stack upon themselves to the point where he literally says you should be teaching yourself by now. You know the principles, figure it out, and that's kind of that's kind of what you just described. Yeah, I mean. I made basically made a couple forms when I took over. I said I just took what I considered beginner level techniques and I put them in a certain order. And there's my form. Now let's practice those. Let's do repetition. Okay, now let's do that as a partner drill. Let's do that on the heavy bag. There's your training. I mean, very, very, very simplifying it and breaking it down. But I took the intermediate techniques. I said, okay, let's do them this way and basically just pulled from based experience, past experiences, but within that that style of technique so we uh we've talked about you know running class and a certain level of discipline and all that have from the books i've read if you want to keep the lights on in a martial arts school you need to teach children basically it should be 50 percent of your income according to most of the books i've read 
how do you tackle that? Because I, I know you don't really, you don't do children. I do. Oh, you do? You have a children's class? Yeah, I have a children's class okay. Tuesday and Thursday. Okay. Yeah. How? It is not 50% of my revenue. Okay. Yeah. How do you differentiate how you teach? I mean, especially with a, a certain level of discipline and how you explain the techniques, because most of my club members are in their mid-20s, and we're almost like damn biker gang. We're, we're, we're hooligans half the time. and That's my observation as well. <laughs> yeah, so it's, 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 so the, the thought of reaching out, and I couldn't run yeah. a kid's class on the same model that I'm running my adult sure. class. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, totally agree. In my personal school, I try and make everything a family-friendly atmosphere. I don't do much different in regards to that in a kid's class and an adult class. That's always pretty much the same. Now, how I teach is a different story. So, And what I mean by that is I don't talk with any profanity or vulgarity on the floor. We don't cuss in class, or we try not to. If somebody drops one, it happens. But we, we try not to have an atmosphere that a kid couldn't walk into and watch their mom or dad do their kung fu or do a Santa class. We have fun. We we talk a little smack to each other, you know, we, we, we jest, but we try not to talk with vulgar comments and well, that's how my teacher did it. That's how I try to do it. Now when it comes to how kids learn and how adults learn and cognitive differences and things like that, obviously I need to adjust my training in a way that they can understand it. Piggyback on what you were saying, most of what I've seen too says that kids are the majority or, you know, at least half of your income and they should be. It's hard to teach kids in my opinion because i am a i mean i mean i'm a jovial guy but i want them to be good i I don't want to be a babysitter i don't teach kids under seven i've been to some martial arts schools that taught kids that starting at four nothing wrong with that just not for me because i don't want to babysit i want to teach them a skill i want to maybe get them in shape i want to give them hopefully a little discipline maybe be a decent role model for them I'm not there to babysit someone's kids, although I should be because I'd make more money. <laughs> um, as far as teaching someone's skill, you know, that I've, I've struggled with because you can't control who you're going to get if you're running a business that kind of a, a traditional commercial, uh, air quotes here, commercial martial arts school, right? I don't know who's going to walk in the door. I don't know how disciplined the kid's going to be. I don't know how long the parents are going to make the kids stay. Typically, the kids love it at first, then they see that there's a lot of hard work involved, and then maybe maybe I'll lose that student. You know, I don't want to water it down. Maybe I should. I don't know. Uh, I had a student in the past that had some behavioral issues in school, you know, got in trouble constantly, and I think was probably on some medication to help with his behavioral issues. And his parent came up to me one day. They said something to the effect of, I don't know how much longer he's going to be here. He's saying he doesn't like it anymore. And I go, okay, well, of course he doesn't like it. I discipline him. <laughs> That's why he brought your kid to me. Yeah. You know? So, you know, what is the parent going to do? You know, are they going to keep their kid and let him get disciplined? You know, because he wasn't getting it at home, which is why this kid is acting out in school. And it's just a terror at home. Love the kid. But... So I don't know what kind of student I'm going to get. I just do my best. Some students aren't going to want to get hit. You know what I mean? Some are going to want to hit. Some have that desire to go punch a punching bag. Some want to watch the Kung Fu movies and the Game of Thrones, and they want to do all that stuff. 
I don't know what I'm going to get. I try to read the parents as best I can. Um, I had a guy in the past that said uh, his kid, his child had been with me for about eight months or so. And he walked in and he said, he got hit the other day. You know, a kid walked up and punched a child. I go, oh, sorry, what happened? He told me the story. His kid walked up and punched a child. And I got completely unprovoked. Gabe was walking to an after-school club or something. Here comes this, this, this bully. So I said, okay, well, I'm going to tell him to hit this kid. And he goes, that's fine. I support that. And I go, okay. And I go, and he's going to get suspended. And he goes, okay, I'm fine with it. And I'm like, all right, we're on the same page. That's what I'm talking about. So I, his kid came out, and I, you know, hey, what's going on? He goes, sure, kid walked up and hit me. And I go, well, you know, he's going to do it again. He did it once and didn't get in trouble. He's probably going to do it again. So I basically told the kid to kick his ass. I said, hit him, hit him hard, hit him fast, and hit him multiple times. And if that does the trick, then stop. If it doesn't do the trick, keep hitting him. Now, I'm teaching martial arts, so I'm not going to water the self-defense down. But in terms of, you know, talking about teaching kids and teaching adults, this is what it is. I don't want to, I want the kid to walk away with his guilt. Now, some students are just there because, sorry, some kids, rather, are just there because their parents want an after-school program, you know, so they can have an hour for themselves or something like that. So the kid gets a little socialization outside of school. So the kid has a physical outlet to go out and burn some steam, which children need. And a mental outlet, you know, they're, they're meeting people, they're meeting other kids, they're learning new things, getting, they're getting disciplined. So I don't like to sugarcoat things. I don't want to babysit somebody. I so it's hard for me to keep, I don't want to say it's hard for me to keep students because that's not necessarily true. It's hard for me to find the balance of the businessman because I'm not the politically correct you know, type. I don't, I want to meet what I think the needs are. Now, I want to meet their needs as well, but they're coming to me because they want their kid to learn self-defense. I don't want to just babysit the kid, have him hit a couple pads and call it a day. I want the kid to be able to fight. If he gets in a fight, you know, Hopefully he didn't start it. Don't condone violence or anything like that. It's going out and starting fights. But I believe violence is sometimes the answer. The old adage, violence is never the answer. Well, I think actually sometimes it is the answer. Now, of course, it's for self-defense. It's not for self-offense. De- delicate balance. Uh, training kids and training adults. Adults are there for a different reason. Sometimes. Very rare. In my perspective, for a social outlet. You know? Yeah, it's a it's a community yeah. building. Yeah, very few of them, I think, want to fight. <laughs> you know, they they want to social outlet. They get fit doing it. They learn a skill doing it. I don't think most of them. Matter of fact, I would say like ten percent. I don't know how it is in Hema. This is just again my personal experience being involved in martial arts. I think about ten percent of students are actually wanting to be dedicated martial artists. Most of them, probably 80-90%, are looking for a social outlet, something to do, something to get in shape, learn a couple of cool skills, perform some forms, break some boards, maybe do a tournament or two, and then yeah, we're done. The, the, the dedicated student, in my opinion, is very hard to find, especially when they see what the training entails, you know, specifically for fighting. Well, definitely for fighting, because I'm not going to let somebody get into a full contact match where they could get really severely hurt. Adults, I'm speaking about adults here in this context without them being very, very ready. And that's going to take some grueling, you know, grueling training, grueling punishment. So, like I said, delicate balance, you know, try to meet, meet the needs of kids and adults. I like teaching kids. I think I like teaching adults more. Yeah. Personally. Yeah, we, uh, when we started, we were in the park. So we just kind of met up. So like, 
it wasn't even it was more of a get together and I think that's why the discipline never formulated correctly, I guess. Um, I mean, we, we, we still line up and we do what we're supposed to do, but there's a, a lot of people are, uh, they say pretty jovial talking to yeah. the whole class. And I love your guys's energy, the, the culture you have. I wish I could tap that a little bit. You guys have a different culture. You, your students train hard. You guys go to tournaments in droves. You know, I don't know how many people go went to your last tournament, but I feel like every time I look at Facebook, you guys got a group carpooling out to North Carolina or somewhere. Like you guys train hard, you compete. There's this, this energy and culture about it, which, which I love. I find it, you know, it like really brings you in, very attractive. Well, that's so yeah. I, I've kind of started because people when you tell people you're a martial arts, I I, I use the word club. I don't even use the word school. Because I I, I kind of have I kind of feel like though I'm leading class, it's I'm I'm actually basically just teaching from the book. You know, it's not my own personal knowledge at, for most situations. So I refer to us as a club, and I refer to it as practice. We are practicing. We are drilling. Uh, it's not a class. And so, and I try to describe it to people when they ask me about it. It's like we're a softball club where we. We meet up and we go play softball together. We're not a, we're not a softball school. We're a softball team, and so we're a HEMA team, mm-hmm. a club more than a school. Yeah, you you'll learn. Mm-hmm. We'll, uh, people will share their knowledge with you, but it's all really coming from these three or four sources we're using. Right. That's interesting. It kind of puts like a low pressure approach to training. You know, you guys still train really hard from what I've seen. Yeah, and there's some legitimate skill. Skill. And we and we and we have some people who, you know, they they'll put in the hard work when they're ready, but you know they'll have they'll because it's such a social thing too. Like even if they're not really feeling up to it, they'll still show up. And I I, I try not to push people when you know they're obviously don't want to be pushed that day. Yeah. Delicate balance. Yeah, Lu- yeah. Lu- Lucas will. Lucas will be like, get your ass up. You're, oh. you're good cop. Uh, yeah, cop. exactly. Yeah. It, it, it yeah. uh, I was in the Navy, so I'm the captain. He's the mean XO. Mm-hmm. You know, so I hand out the awards and he hands out the punishment. And <laughs> it's it's a nice it's yeah. a nice uh, little flow we got going here. Um, well, it's good you guys balance each other. Yeah, he's uh, he's awesome. Uh, he also uh, Lucas is an engineer by trade, so like I don't I don't learn things the way he learns them. And Lucas, Lucas will build like flow charts and Venn diagrams and show it to people. And then I'll be like, this really means do this. Mm-hmm. And they'll, oh, so like if we, we attack on the learning aspect, we yeah. attack them from both angles as well. Speaking of students, though, I think a lot of people f- want, they need to feel like they're getting better. They need to feel like uh, their skills are growing. Um, in traditional martial arts, there's ranking systems. Uh, HEMA doesn't have any in that. Now, I think the belt system is Japanese. It's American innovation right. of a Japanese right. tradition. Yeah. How does that work in Chinese martial arts? So we use a belt system, and there's 10 belts, you know, white through black, black being the top, and then there's levels, first degree, secondary, up, up through the ranks of black belt. Double-edged sword, in my opinion, for belts. Mess of black belts that Incredibly skilled. Heck, I've met some orange orange belts. So you're like, wow, you're an orange belt. Really skilled. I've met some black belts, not so much. You know, and you're like, wow, you're teaching? There's not really a governing body on that. 
you know, there are martial arts schools that are attached to associations. You know, there's a Wing Chun Association. There's a Five Ancestor Fist Association. But you don't have to be a member of that. You can choose to. And in my experience, it really comes down to per school. Now, if you're attached to a lineage, it's going to be a little more strict. There's going to be more requirements. But, you know, that, that in the head of that lineage is generally deciding, to my understanding, what the rank is and what are the requirements and what are the forms that they need to learn, what are the techniques that they need to be proficient in. Etc. Etc. What are the exercise requirements? What knowledge base do they need to have? Some schools have you learn a form and do some push-ups, sit-ups, and squats. Some have you learn a form, do some board breaking, and fight. You know, and it, and it basically comes down to the particular school. There's, like I said, there's no governing body on it, which leads to a little bit of, or a lot of bit of variety and skill when someone says i'm a blue belt and blah 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 and this person says i'm a blue belt in this style and they're on two different pages skill wise and it is what it is there's not an association that governs all martial arts don't think there should be and my art it takes about three to five years to get a black belt and then from there you get your first degree right first degree black belt and to become a second degree it's technically two more years of training and to get your third degree, it's three more years of training. And to get your fourth, four more years, so on, so on, so on. So by the time somebody's a fifth degree or a master or a sixth degree, I think it's um, master in a lot of a lot of uh, arts. You know, they've put in potentially twenty years, maybe more. You know, belt systems are beneficial in some regard because it gives students milestones, and it kind of says, you know. We have a belt testing on August 1st, and you need to know X, Y, Z come August. So they're going to grind a little bit because they want to get that belt, you know, because it's the next step in, in skill. I use air quotes here, in skill, loosely. But it's not, you know, but it's kind of perceived as so. Once you're at this rank, you should know X, Y, Z. I believe once you're at this rank, you should know X, Y, Z, and you should be able to apply X, Y, Z. So, but that's, again, I like to think that I'm a fight school. I want my students to be proficient in fighting. Not just be able to pull off a couple moves on a punching bag or the air, or do a couple drills or a couple two-man sets. You know, I want them to be able to apply it in a pressure-tested setting. Somebody resisting fully, maybe not trying to knock them flat out. You know, it doesn't always have to be full contact sparring, but that's that's how I do my my school. Teach their own. You know, you do do what you want when you're running your own school. I like the idea of a beginner, intermediate, advanced. So I'm not, I'm not in love with a belt system. I could do away with it personally and just call it a, a ranking system based on experience or something like that. Or you qualify as a beginner, so you should be learning X, Y, Z. You qualify as intermediate, you need to be learning this. It doesn't have to be so specific that it's a color belt or a stripe on the belt every, you know, two months they do a new test. I like competition for ranking. Now I don't know exactly how HEMA does does it. There is no uniform. I mean, it's a club-to-club basis right now. That's, okay. that's why I wanted to bring it up. Yeah. Um, there, there, there's a couple groups. I think the HFA has ranks, but there, it's not equivalent to the Oriental Belt system. It's a totally. It's based off of the Guild system in Italy. I think I looked it up a couple months ago, but I've forgotten yeah. a lot of what I read. I was talking with somebody about it the other day, and I like the idea. A tournament-based ranking system, you know, again, that's hard to do because there's not a governing body. So one tournament does its own rules. It's an amateur-sanctioned event, but it adheres to its own set of rules. And, you know, and you have this tournament that's adhering to these set of rules. So it gets, you know, it's very hard 
to go to all that uniform. I like the idea of say you go and compete and you get five wins and you've had ten fights. Okay, you're intermediate. Or or whatever. You know, you put whatever number you want there. Instead of, oh, you did a form and you can do ten push ups and ten squats and ten sit ups. Here's your belt. Yeah, I uh I just started awarding a patch for people who get out of their pools at a tournament. So at he- for most HEMA events, you have to get through a mini tournament to get into the main tournament. Okay. And when people do that, I'll give a uh, hand out a patch for their jacket. But I still feel weird about that because I don't know the level of their competition. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, I mean, he, uh, if if one guy's in the pool with the guy that ends up being first and third place, and then the other guy's in the pool with a bunch of new people. It's not really fair. Yeah. Right. And I would have to sit down and, you know, really, really dive into it. The best thing I can come up with, because the belt system is flawed. Well, let me rephrase that. The belt system can be flawed. Um, I don't think there's a perfect ranking system. I did a Sanda circuit, and they gave you points based on wins. They gave you, like, 350 points for, how, how did they do it? I would have to Google it. It was, like, 350 points for one win, and then if you won Again, that day, you got another 100 points. And if you won first place, I think you got, like, another 100 or 200 points. So I don't know exactly how they did it, but I looked at my, I looked myself up one day, and I go, okay, well, I got all these points, but what does that get me? You know, yeah. nothing. <laughs> nothing. You know, if you wanted to go pro, a lot of time, you just need to have a certain amount of amateur fights, and then somebody willing to sponsor you and things like that. Once you get five amateur fights, okay, you can apply for a pro card or, or whatever it is. I'm not sure on the numbers depending on what you're trying to apply for. Um, I, I like the idea of a tournament style ranking, but it's hard to get tournament promoters unified and things like that because everybody wants to do this rule set and this rule set. And what if they're doing longsword and what if they're doing messer and what if these guys are doing spear? Does that, does that count to your skill? I mean, it's just, it's, it's complicated. It's complex, I think. Complex. Yeah. I know there, there's a website out here now. Um, it's been around for a couple of years now. Called It's a HEMA ranking. And your score is based off of, they have an alg- algorithm. So depending on the rank of the person you're fighting affects your rank. Okay. So if you fight a really good person, it's more it's worth more than if you fight a, a person that's their first time. I like that. I like that. I, I, don't, I don't know the algorithm. Yeah. I understand it and everything. Well, I mean, I think we could have a whole podcast just on ranking. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's very complex. And, and how do you even it out? You know, like like you said, it's skill basis. This guy competing in a pool where he's fighting monsters and or is he fighting, you know, plots. Well, and so I train, uh, I also train Krav Maga and I train at 10th Planet. And they're, the way they award rank is totally opposite of one another. At, at the Krav Center, they have uh, they have broken the belts into you have to attended a certain number of classes, which allows you to take a written test, which allows you to take a physical test. And uh, the physical test is a physical fitness test and a technique test. So you have a track and you know what you need to know, and then you you go and you learn that and you do that. At Tenth Planet, the instructor watches you and when you are a blue belt he'll come tell you yeah and there's a middle ground uh, there's a middle ground there i would like to meet for for my club 
but I don't know what that is. Yeah, I don't know that there's a right or a wrong, you know, like you said, I like a middle ground approach. I like both of those approaches, and that's kind of how I do my build system, you know. Here's what you need to learn. Here's your material. Now you need to perform perform it, and I grade you. You also need to be able to do some physical requirements, and depending on your level, you might need to do wrestle, you might need to spar, you might need to do full contact, you might need to go compete. You know, I I personally learn better when things are broken up into small chunks. It's a lot easier for me to focus on a small part of the art than to try to learn it all at once. I think yeah, I think most people are like yeah. that. Well. I think um, it also depends on what the expectation is for the person testing. You know, are we talking somebody is testing for instructor instructorhood? I believe they should be competing probably twice a year because then you have their skill constantly pressure tested. They're constantly growing instead of getting the mentality of I'm too busy teaching. I can't, well, I don't want to spar. Or, I don't need to perform because I'm always teaching. And then the skill starts to deteriorate a little bit. And like I said, well, so you said 10th planet does. They they award you the rank. Yeah, so the, there's no test. Yeah, he just. I like that too. I yeah. mean, but that I don't think is very traditional at all, which is a good thing in a lot of ways, because you know, an American society of martial arts, we get our belts, we get our black belts. You know, are you a black belt? You know, oh, that's really good. No, I suck. <laughs> you know, and depending on where you are, your skill is going to be massively different. Massively different. I like. The requirements to be the same for everybody. So if I'm asking somebody to test for their white belt, no matter how fit they are, or what kind of athlete they are, or are not, or you know where they come from, they have the same requirements. So the bar is set here, and then you know the next belt will increase a little bit in difficulty. I think it's a complex, complex conversation. So the um, HFA is reason they just voted to acknowledge a HEMA rank of master. Which is not that's above what you would call a black belt, um, right? And, and I, they were having a lot of they they discussed it because the rank of master has so much baggage attached to it. If you call someone a master, there's yeah yeah there, very much so. It, there's things that people outside of the community immediately think, and there's things people inside of the community immediately think. And I I hate the term master to be honest. I don't like it. Yeah. So if you if you met someone who had the rank of master in HEMA, like what would as an outsider of another martial arts, what what would you think that meant? Like what would they need? What would you immediately sure. assume? Uh and, and especially yeah. not 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 so much like you met them and their personalities weird cuz uh, you can be really good and be a jerk. You can be really sure. good and be humble. Yeah. Um Skill set wise, skill set wise, yeah. What would I expect the master to uh, to represent? It's tough. In my experience, to get a fifth degree black belt and say something like five ancestor fist, you probably have going to put in twenty five years ish. Okay, I mean, so and and I, I mentioned the age for a reason. If somebody started training when they were twenty five or thirty, and twenty five years later they are. 55 or or 60 or something like that i expect a master to be able to deal with any and all opponents now that's not really a realistic approach because well what if they were really good at one point are they but you know yeah so like you look at coaches there's like like this myth where it's like if you're the master like 
you wouldn't ever get touched. But that's crazy. That's crazy. Yeah, that's, that's not crazy. that's not real. Right. Especially when you bring in the the age part, because right. having having all the knowledge in a seventy year old body right. is not the same as having all the knowledge in a twenty five year old body. Sure. No. Not even close. You know. Um, but to have all the knowledge in a 25-year-old body is impossible. Right. So, like, there's this weird, weird line. And I think they kept comparing it to, like, so it's all based off the guild system in medieval Italy. And you can reach the rank of master then. And they were comparing it to, to in today's society, like, getting your master's in college, like becoming a doctor. That's sure. Six or eight years and you're a master. Are you? <laughs> yeah so so exactly that's what that's why i was wanting to bring it up yeah i well i'm glad you did i think it's a very complex with a lot of variables to it like you know talk about age and skill and can they pass that knowledge on what is a master it, when when you say master to me i expect that person to pretty much be able to do it all he should be able to teach everything that the art has in it might not be able to perform everything based on you know if you're telling me this guy is like a fifth degree black belt and he's my age, I'm 35, and he better be able to do anything and everything that, that art requires of him, and he better be able to be, and he better be able to do it on somebody resisting, yeah. you know, and pressure testing him and pushing him. It's hard to put that in a box, really. Yeah, in my opinion. They also is. brought up, I might not be able to do it all, but I can explain it all to you in a way that you could do it. You right. know, I could, I could teach, teach it in a way that. I you can obviously see that I understand it from every yeah. point of view. And what's more important in that regard, I say you being able to teach it to somebody is more important than you being able to perform it on somebody. And and that specific, I mean, because if you're going to be a coach, you have to be able to articulate what what you. I don't care how good you are, if you can't speak it, then don't teach it. You know what I mean? Like if you're a really good practitioner and you're kind of transitioning into instructorship, if you can't you can't articulate it, then you're you're not going to be a great teacher the student is going to get is not going to get great lessons from it so the question is what what is more important in that in, in that regard like if you're trying to teach somebody something that you can't particularly do i think it's okay to be able to to not be able to do something i mean we're, we're human beings so we're going to deteriorate our bodies aren't going to be capable of what like you said what that 25 year olds can do and what that 70 year olds can do so i hate to put the master thing in a box and a master concept in a box like, they got to be able to do all this they can't be touched that's crazy yeah like if you look at the greats you know mom and all the i would probably i would call him a master of his art did he get hit all the time yeah <laughs> okay <laughs> did he lose yeah 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 i mean hey, look at you know another great tyson did he get knocked down yeah did he lose yeah I don't know if Tyson ever got knocked out. I think he did. Yeah, Buster Douglas knocked him out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, but but is he a master of the trade? Oh, yes. There's no question about that. Nobody can. Well, one of the examples they used is, uh, you know, in Brazilian jiu-jitsu, there's a belt beyond black belt. It's the red belt. And that's their master equivalent. And uh, there's only seven of those guys on the planet. And they're all above 60. You know? So... Hema, 30 years ago, was a dead martial art. But now that everyone's practicing, I don't know. I don't even know if there has been enough time to absorb it all. Sure. I mean, yeah. Well, let me let me ask you this. Let me back it up a second. You know, you take an example of 
these BJ, BJJ guys that are red belts. If somebody walked up, some slouch on the street walked up to him and was like, you know, no gun, no knife, just hand to hand. My expectation is that master is able to defend himself if it came down to it. You know, I have like verbal judo as the answer to most, as the answer to most uh, encounters. Verbal judo will probably do more good for you than being able to fight uh, more often, I should say. But, you know, let's say he has has no choice in this guy or gal. They have to be able to, to defend themselves in this encounter. I, I believe a master should be able to do that. If they can't beat an average Joe, are they, what's what's the use of the title master at that point? And I'm not getting anyone specific, I'm just saying for thought. Well, there's also, are you, you're not the same pace. You won't be the same person you were when you were awarded the belt five years later. Right. You would think, you know, they would just treat that person like a kitten but i mean (laughs) there's a there's a certain point where all the you can have all the knowledge and it's not going to matter anymore but does that mean you're not a master anymore good question do you uh you definitely still deserve the respect yeah you know i mean you put the time in you you put the the blood sweat tears and the sacrifice to to get there and then again it also goes to I think it goes, there's a certain amount of your personality and how you treat your, your respect to other people. Uh, if you're, if you know everything in, in theory, say I, I, I list off all the stuff you need to know to be a master and you know all that, but you're a jerk. I don't care. I don't care that you're a master. It, it means nothing at that point. Cause even if you could teach me, I don't want you to teach me. Right. So that's a good point. And then, that mastership, what good does it do? Exactly. Yeah. It's it's an interesting conversation. There's a lot of, you know, fallacy, like you said, there's that, you know, masters can't get hit. Well, that's just, you know, I think people that don't understand combat will say that a lot of times. Like, oh, well, you know, I did this. Oh, my gosh, you just remind me of some with that comment that I got to. In traditional martial arts, there's a concept of the master always wins. And basically what what that means is if someone is doing a demo or something, this high level practitioner, you know, he's a fifth degree or whatever, or he's a teacher or an owner of a school, and he pulls one of his students aside and he wants to do a demo. The master is supposed to win. <laughs> okay. Now this 60 year old man comes out and wants to do this demo. And, you know, he's not as able body as he once was. Typically you just go with it. It's not about the student's ego to say, man, this isn't going to work on me. Like this old man, no, it's not, it's not about that. It's guys showing demonstration. But I think the master always wins type of mentality is dangerous because then it becomes, well, no one's ever pressure testing it. You know, masters can be 35, right? Master, you know, master could be an able, able-bodied guy, you know, that, that could still perform all this. So, but, if you offer too much respect, sometimes there's not a there's not a verification. So skill skill level will deteriorate, and, and then we we build these stories, I guess, and it's almost and I've seen it become like hero worship in a lot of ways of mass of masters and and that type of thing. There's, nobody challenges this person. So this guy's out, this guy or gal's out there teaching, they're doing all these incredible things, and these people are flying all over the place, and they're doing you know. Easy, really easy takedowns on them, things like that. Well, the person isn't getting challenged at all. So we all know this person's skill. 
And my ego wants to say, well, I need to know that they can teach me. And the humble side of ego is, well, you know, let's be objective about it. I don't need to go challenge this guy to a fight to learn something. I could, you know, empty my cup a little bit and let him pour a little bit of knowledge in there and I can pressure test the techniques that way. You know, I don't, I don't need to go be an ass to challenge some, some guy. So I like the trust but verify approach. Somebody teaches me something. Okay, well, I can go try that. But when you're looking for a teacher, you want to know that they're going to be able to teach you, right? Yeah. If you're coming in at the beginning level, you're going to learn no matter who you're with. You know? With HEMA, I think it comes in at a, it's a weird spot because most clubs start in the park by some guy who watched a video on the internet and he knows, he, he doesn't know any more than the other people who are coming there for the first time. You know, I've only been doing this three years. If someone shows up at the club with 10 years of kendo under their belt, he'll probably, he'll probably win some, some of the sparring matches with me. So does that person not need to listen to what I'm reading out of the book now because he can beat me in a sparring match? Yeah, no, I would disagree. And you know, the thing about, uh, I mentioned, you know, there's professional boxers that got hit. Okay. Well, they lost, but look at their greatness, you know, that doesn't take away because they lost a couple of fights or because they got knocked out even, you know, kind of a silly thought to say, well, they shouldn't get hit, you know, we watch all the Kung Fu movies where the masters and then we had the Matrix where he's dodging bullets. So we let our imaginations kind of build, build things that aren't there. And I think that's a problem. I think there should be more, more pressure testing. But again, do I need to go pressure test? Every person I see that has something that they could teach me, or can I just shut up and learn what they what they got to say? Yeah, well, I'm I'm, I'm also experiencing um, like I'll go to a hammer tournament. I didn't start martial arts period until I was in my early 30s. There are people out there now who have started hema when they were like 12. So like they're probably killers. They're they are yeah. killers. They are, yeah. and you know, there's a certain amount of dedication that only kids can do. Uh, yeah, I have a job. I have a wife. I have bills. As much as I'm obsessed with Hema, I could be more obsessed. I, I, there should be a way, and I'm 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 frantically trying to figure out a way to get more time to do it. But it, that time's not available to me like it is for a young practitioner. So I I see there the, there's going to be like a, a a wave where people end up just the wave's going to break and leapfrog over the current generation, the next generation is because they're going to a lot more, they're going to have a lot more sources. There's going to be a lot more clubs and they're going to start way earlier. I'm, I'm looking forward to it, but I'm also kind of, you know, uh, I'm hesitant because I, I know that kid's about to walk in the door any day now. Yeah. And well, and I, I could kind of relate with what you're saying. There's always going to be somebody better, you know, and again, talking about the master mentality, just because somebody loses. I mean, there's always going to be somebody better. We can't negate people's skill because they could beat you or, or, or they might beat you occasionally. Like you talked about, if you're reading out of the book, if some guy walks in with 10 years experience, does that negate your knowledge and skill? No, of course not. You know, when that guy walks into my school and I have to spar him <laughs> and he might be better, does that negate, does that take away or invalidate or take away my credibility as a teacher because somebody can beat me? I don't think so. Personally, there's always somebody better. Yeah. You know, does that mean that, you, that I don't have something to offer because somebody can walk in 
They show me what for. No, I don't think so. I still have, you know, I think I still have a lot to offer. And I have sparred guys that are better than me. And it stretches you, you know, if anything, you know, stretches your skill set. I had a guy sidekick me in the liver from about a foot away, and I'm thinking, how did he do that? You know, <laughs> I didn't see it coming just so quick. But that doesn't take away what I what I can pass and what I can offer. You know, pick yourself up and dust yourself off and keep going. All right, well, we're about to wrap up, but I, I, I was going to ask you, as a uh, traditional martial artist, what are things that the HEMA community can do to reach out and kind of, you know, because like, like you said, you're, uh, the Chinese Brawl Sword, you're thinking about doing a Messer tournament. I would love to reach out to other Kung Fu schools and be like, we're throwing a tournament. If you buy this gear, you can come, you can come train with us. Same thing with Kendo. I know they have a certain rule set where we couldn't train with them, but they could easily show up at a, a longsword tournament with a, you know, if they had the proper gear, use yeah. their techniques. Yeah. Uh, it's a tough question. I mean, because I feel like, you know, sometimes I have, I've tried to reach out with certain people. I try to reach out to the Aikido club in here. It kind of just blew me off. I don't know if it, if it was because they felt threatened or yeah. they didn't want to, well, they felt like, uh, it, not even threatened, like threatened monetarily. Like they didn't want to share a piece of the pie. Sure. Well, tricky, slippery territory there. You know, I don't like the, what I would describe as the, the scarcity mentality. I mean, we're, we are in Jacksonville. What is this city's population? 800,000 or a million? It's a, almost. Big city. Yeah. I mean, there's, <laughs> there's going to be plenty to go around in terms of like a business. You know, there's going to be plenty of students or potential students, I should say. I have experienced kind of what you're talking about when I do my open sparring. I invite any styles welcome. You know, anybody can come. Do you want to wrestle? Do you want to box? Do you want to do taekwondo? Do you want to do kickboxing? Do you have a Wing Chun background? Do you have a MMA background? Okay, that's that's great. Everybody is welcome to come. I think in my experience, a lot of traditional arts are are pressure tested. Like I've lost, I think they've lost their 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 effectiveness in a lot of ways. Um, because people are held to the fire, we live in a kind of civilized, you know, civilized, civilized age. We don't go around banging on each other, fighting all the time. Most people don't want to go get punched in the face. Most people don't want to put the work in and the sacrifice that, that takes to get to a level of high skill where they can be pressure tested and still be skillful. That takes a lot of, a lot of work and takes a lot of, a lot of pain normally comes with that. I don't think that's most, what most want. What could you guys do to market to a traditional martial arts base? I I I could offer a couple things. Are they threatened? Maybe. Are other schools threatened when I ask them to come do a sparring? Maybe. I don't know. Maybe not. One thing you guys do, it's pretty much a form. You guys do like your devices, right? You were explaining earlier. Mike Meyer's got a couple cuts, and he says, step this way, step this way, step this way, and do these three cuts, three or four cuts while you're at it. And that's essentially a form. Uh, when I have traditional martial arts, call up my school and say, hey, do you guys do a weapons class? I don't want to do the, I don't want to do the five ancestor base and learn another art. I just want to learn a weapon. Okay, you can do that. Yeah. Are you interested in sparring? I mean, what what do you want? If if they're gonna come in with a samurai sword art, is that kendo based? Yeah, they use specifically samurai, samurai swords. Uh, I had a guy walk in. He said, "Well, I did the Japanese art. I don't know what he said. Maybe it's France and kendo." Or, well, I would recommend him go to your school because I'm not gonna really be able to meet his needs personally because. I think he's looking for something else, but he might want to just do cutting. He might want to just do um, form work. Well, 
I can't help you there. I think the more variety you guys have, like I was explaining earlier, those kung fu tournaments they had a Wing Chun division, they have hand forms, they have weapon forms, they have reaction skills like push hands and uh, chi sao, and they have light contact sparring, they have full contact, uh, continuous sandan. And, I mean, not everybody wants to go through the pain of getting chucked around and doing rain and getting slammed, but everybody enjoys these, you know, but a lot of people enjoy these, enjoy these hobbies. It's tough for people to step outside of their comfort zone. I have people come in and they have a boxing background. Okay, well, we don't need to work your boxing. Let's work your kicks. You're already a great boxer, but all they do is box. Stop that. Let's work your kicks. Let's work your takedowns. You're a great boxer. Let's stretch the skill set. I think people want to stretch the skill set, but sometimes they're hesitant. Yeah, hesitant. Yeah. Because yeah, hesitant it's, to feel uncomfortable. uncomfortable. Yeah, yeah. They don't want to yeah. be in an uncomfortable situation. Yeah. Well. I think that's it. Uh, we're at an hour and a half. Well, thank you for coming in. Yeah, well, thanks for having me. This episode of Swords and Stereo was produced by Final Plank Media Productions. Theme song for Swords and Stereo is Thunderer by Professor Agma. Check him out, too. To find out more about Bold City Longsword, visit their website at jacksonvillehema.com. To find more Final Plank Media produced podcasts, visit finalplank.com or visit us at Final Plank on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks for listening.